Another thing that I get to do as lead pastor is I get to introduce sermon series. And we are in today a new sermon series, and it will come from the New Testament book of Jude. So if you would please find the book of Jude in your copy of God's Word on both campuses. If you have a hard time finding it, go to the end of the Bible, find Revelation, go one back, and you will be in Jude. Now, I just I feel like I need to say to the Ridgeview family, um, while it is usually my job to introduce a sermon series, uh, we're going to start another sermon series in about a month, and I don't want to wear out my welcome. So in about a month, Mike is going to introduce that series. You don't have to put up with me except for today, and you can all just look at one another and breathe a sigh of relief. But we're all together going to be starting this new uh, message series from the book of Jude, which may be the most overlooked book for sure in the New Testament, but maybe the Bible. And so while we're kind of finding our place in Jude, uh, maybe we need to ask, why is this book so overlooked? Well, it certainly shouldn't be because of the author. The author tells us that he is Jude, servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Now, when he tells us he's a brother of James, that lets us know that he is the brother of the person who wrote the New Testament book of James, but it also lets us know that he is uh, the brother of the James who wrote that book, who was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. So that's all well and good, but what's even more important about that is that the James who wrote the book of James and who was the uh, leader of the early church in Jerusalem was one of Christ's earthly brothers. So Jude is a son of Mary and Joseph, a brother of James. He is a brother, an earthly brother of Christ. So we've not overlooked it because of his background. Maybe we've overlooked it because there's only 25 verses in it. It's a little book. It would be easy to overlook. But I, I honestly think that the reason this book is so overlooked is because it is, how should I say this delicately, um, it is weird. It is, it is uh, what I said to the 8 o'clock service here at Antioch, it is uh, the crazy uncle of Bible books in the, in the New Testament. It really is filled with uh, some very, very strange things, almost unprecedented things in the, the New Testament. So, so for instance, just to give you an idea, it alludes to, actually quotes directly from at least one and probably two non-canonical books, meaning that they are not in the Christian canon. They are not a part of the Bible. One of those books is a book called the Book of Enoch. It was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it is only a part of the Christian scripture of one group of Christians known as the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which until this very second, you didn't even know was a thing. All right, so it has that, and then it also has a quotation, we believe, from a book that is so far out there, it literally isn't in existence anymore. It is, it is filled with images of, of angels having physical relationships with, with humans and, and demonic battles between angels and Satan. I mean, it just really is very, very strange. And I think a lot of people just say, well, I want to just skip past those 25 verses and go to a book of the Bible that's super easy to understand, like Revelation. <laughs> and, so, and so people just run past it. People just run past it. But here's the thing. If we can deal with what we perceive to be weirdness and, and odd kind of references and language we will see that it is actually a very simple book with a very timely 
message for the modern church. So we'll spend these next uh, few weeks looking at the, at the battle-ready life, looking at the book of Jude. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? The book of Jude, beginning in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains until the gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, it becomes very evident when you read those introductory words to this book that Jude is vexed about something. He was meaning to write a letter to this group of churches that he had a relationship with that, that was just meant to encourage, was to edify, was to help them celebrate almost as an act of worship together the common salvation they had in Jesus Christ. But he, he began to perceive that there was an existential threat to the health and the vibrancy of the church, which caused him to shift directions entirely. And he talks about it in the verses that we just read, but maybe you missed it. You think, oh, I don't see an existential threat to the church in the verses we just read. So, so you're, you're prompted to say, hey, Jude, don't be afraid. <laughs> you have no, th- you, you, everybody middle-aged and up said, hey. Anyway. I, uh, you have no idea how, how badly I wanted to try to figure out how for every title of, of this series to be, Hey Jude, Don't Something, I couldn't do that, so I, I bailed out, probably not a good use of my time. But you're, you're, you're saying, I don't see the threat. What is the threat? Well, it's a big one, and he talks about it in verse 4. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. We'll get there in a minute. Ungodly people, okay, and then here it is, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, we see that and we think, ah, there's a two-pronged problem. There are people who have crept in unnoticed, who are now among them in the church, who are perverting the grace of God into sensuality, which lets us know that there was some kind of sexual immorality a part of this, and that also there were a group of people who were denying the, the lordship of, of Jesus Christ. That's, that's how we would naturally maybe read this and, and feel this. But, but what Jude is getting at, and his readers would have known it right off, is that there wasn't a two-pronged problem. There was one problem. 
The problem was, was that there were people who were perverting the grace of God into sexual license, and in doing so, were demonstrating that Jesus wasn't really their Lord. It's one problem, perverting the grace of God, which demonstrates that Jesus really isn't their Lord and, and their master. Now, the problem that he's dealing with, that perversion of grace into license to sin, is not unique to Jude. It shows up a lot of different times in the Bible. In fact, uh, to give you an idea how the thinking goes with it, it's helpful to, to, to review, and you can do this on your own, the end of Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul is talking about how our condemnation under the weight of God's law, let's just kind of broadly say the Ten Commandments, our, the weight of, of condemnation underneath the Ten Commandments increases every time we sin. And so he's, he's going on about how all of us are being crushed and burdened by our inability to keep God's law, to keep the Ten Commandments. And every time that we break one of those, we are just feeling more and more and being crushed more and more under the weight of the condemnation or the judgment that our sin deserves. But then he goes on to say that the grace of God shown to us through Christ Jesus is so amazing and so wonderful that that condemnation is lifted from us. He goes on to say in uh, Romans uh, chapter 8 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The grace of God is such a wonderful thing that there's literally no sin that God's grace can't cover. And that should cause us to go hallelujah. But it was causing a group of people in these churches that Jude was writing to and to a lot of different churches in the New Testament times to think, okay, you're telling me that I literally can't out God's grace. So if that's the case, I guess maybe I'm free to sin all I want. As a matter of fact, there was a group of people, super spiritual, saying, the thing I'm going to do, because I'm so spiritual and so godly, is that I'm going to sin so much as a way of demonstrating the grace of God. Now, we get how warped that is, but we hear echoes of it in, in the modern church today. And in particular, in the area of sexual license. It shows up like this. God loves me, wants me to be happy. So I'm going to divorce this spouse so that I can marry this person. Or it goes all the way up to God loves me, wants me to be happy, made me this way. So I'm going to build my identity around something that God says will ultimately hurt me and lead me further away from God. It's the whole idea of of perverting God's grace, his love, into a license for us to really be our own lords and masters. And we're, in doing that, showing that Jesus really isn't our Lord and master. So this problem that has shown itself in the churches to which Jude is writing is still in existence today, where there is constantly a, a, an underground demonic kind of effort to corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ, to draw people not to God but away from God under the banner of mature spirituality. And Jude says, you've let that creep in unchecked in, in the church. 
And I'm telling you, you've got to battle it. You've got to fight it. You've got to stand for the apostolic faith handed down to the saints. And so what is our battle plan when that happens? What is it that we are to do? Jude gives us three kind of broad pieces of guidance here. And the first is this. Our battle plan, what we must do, is that we must live in the power of our identity. Okay, listen to that. Live in the power of our identity. Look at how he starts all of this. Jude 1 it introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother in James. And then he addresses those he's writing to. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm writing to a group of saved people, people who are followers of Jesus. But let's make sure we know why we are followers of Jesus and why we are saved. It is the work of God. He called us to himself. We didn't find our way to him. He called us to himself. And, and we are kept in that faith that he has called us to by Jesus himself. And so... There's no one that I'm addressing who has earned their way to God, who has merited God's favor, who is keeping themselves in the faith by their own moral certitude. There's no one I'm writing to like that. All of us are beneficiaries of the marvelous and wonderful grace of God, and without that marvelous and wonderful grace of God, none of us would have any kind of hope. And then having laid that groundwork, he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. How can he say that? How can he say mercy, uh, grace, and peace be multiplied to you? He can say that because as a result of that salvation, which none of us merit, which none of us can earn, which none of us can keep hanging on to, Christ has given us himself. And his life begins to take over and overwhelm our own. And we begin to manifest the life of Christ. You've heard me say this a million times before, but the goal of the Christian life is ultimately that our lives will become the kind of life that Jesus himself would live if he were us. And with that being the case, with that being our bedrock identity, the things that are multiplied out of our lives lead to mercy and love and grace and peace. In other words, we're going to be like Jesus. We are going to, therefore, deal with issues in the church like Jesus would deal with issues with the church, which is at a bedrock place of humility. When I encounter someone who may be erring in the faith, they haven't suddenly become my enemy that I have to attack. That's somebody who needs the grace of God as much as I do. And I need to go to them and love and mercy and kindness and plead with them to return back. I need to help them be drawn deeper into the life of Christ so that this error is not perpetuated in their lives. They become people who are making this, this effort to preserve the faith who are are acting as if Jesus, as Jesus would act in those circumstances, with humility, not arrogance, not smugness, not boisterousness, none of that. They're acting with humility. And in the shrill, obnoxious, boisterous world in which we live, 
that is something we have to remember. My wife, Julie, had this little dog for years. That dog, little dog, loved Julie and hated everyone else in our family. I, I mean, I, I, the dog, I, I just thought it would actually never exit the earth. It just it hated all of us except Julie and then lived forever and ever and ever. I, I, never th- I thought it would never go away. Kids sometimes come to me and they'll say, Pastor Derek, do dogs go to heaven? And my default answer in my head is, well, I know one that didn't. <laughs> I, I uh, could not stand that dog. And we, we got it when we lived in rural Tennessee, when I was a pastor in rural Tennessee. We lived in a church parsonage, basically carved out of a corner of a pasture on a little two-lane, two-lane road in, in rural Tennessee. And so when that dog needed to be let out at night, I would open the back door, and as soon as it hit the back stoop, it'd go, it'd just bark its head off. And I'd think, you idiot. What, what are you accomplishing? You, you think that barking at the darkness is going to keep all of the things beyond the fence at bay. But actually what you are doing is providing echolocation. I, if, 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 if that fence weren't there, all you would be doing would be uh, sounding the alarm to everything out there in the darkness that dinner is served. I, I tried to leave the gate open a few times. It never worked. Anyway, <laughs> the reason I share that, and there is a reason, The reason I share that is because what passes as contending for the faith today is really nothing more than little dogs barking at the dark. That's all it is. It's not accomplishing anything. It's not keeping the demons in the darkness at bay. It is not preserving life and well-being. It's just making little nothings feel good about themselves. And if you want to do the kingdom any good, don't shrink back when the gospel needs to be preserved. But step into that battle armed and clothed in your identity in Christ Jesus and just stop being a jerk. Stop being a jerk. So we are... As a, as a means of, of engaging this battle, being ready for this battle, we are to live in the power of our identity. The next thing we are to do is to live in the power of our mission. To live in the power of our mission. Every generation of believers has as one of its primary goals preserving the faith for the next generation of believers. That's, that's really a primary goal of every single generation of believers, to preserve the gospel for the next generation. So how do you do that? How do you live in the power of your mission and do that? Believe it or not, the first step of that has nothing to do with the people that you sit next to in a local church. It has to do with actually sharing your faith. It has to do with actually taking that gospel, which has been delivered to you by the grace of God, and going to neighbors going to co-workers, going to classmates, and sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ, which has redeemed us and which has saved us. In order for the, the gospel to survive generation to generation, it will need a host. 
And you and I are the hosts of that gospel faith handed down from the saints, the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to share it with others to find it. But then beyond that, we are also to do that, live in the power in that mission, not in isolation, but in community with other believers in Jesus Christ. If you are attempting to stand for the faith apart from the ministry of the local church, you are setting yourself up for absolute failure. When, when Jude is writing to the believers here, he's not writing to individuals, he's writing to the church because the church is the one who has received the faith handed down from the saints. It is the church's job in community with one another to preserve the faith. It is the church's job in the love and humility of Christ when they see someone walking outside of the faith to go to that person in the love and humility of Christ and say something that none of us like to hear but which we all need to hear from time to time and that is you're wrong. That's not what the scriptures say. That's not what the gospel has said to us. We need the local church so that we can stay lashed to the faith handed down once and for all to the saints. So we, we live in the power of that mission when we share the gospel outside the church and when we lash ourselves together as a local church and keep one another accountable to it. The last thing that we need to do beyond living in the power of our identity and beyond living in the power of our mission is to live in the power of our hope. Live in the power of our hope. And what is our hope? Well, Jude gets to that in the first kind of appearance of, of the weirdness that characterizes the book of Jude in verse 5. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, destroyed afterward those who did not believe. Now, perhaps you're thinking, okay, well, I, I thought uh, Jesus didn't come along until the New Testament, and this is a reference to the Exodus here, the second book of the Bible, and he says Jesus did that. What gives? Well, what we're seeing there is uh, a hint at the fact that the early church very quickly began to see that Jesus Christ was the visible manifestation of the eternal God. So Jesus was the one present leading them out of Egypt. But then you'll remember that there were a group of those who came out of Egypt who were not permitted to experience the, the salvation of the Exodus, which was the promised land, because they rebelled against God. And so he references that. And then he gives another illustration, because that's what these things are. He says, and the angels who did not say, verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This is the first quotation from the book of Enoch. And he is referencing something that we see in Genesis chapter 6, in which Peter actually alludes to in the book of First Peter. When the angels who were in rebellion against God, sought to corrupt humanity to the point of destruction by engaging in a physical relationship to produce offspring with the daughters of men, with the women of the earth. It's talked about in Genesis chapter 6, and that's what he's referencing here. And he's saying that as a result of that rebellion, they have been kept uh, reserved for judgment in the last day. And then in verse 7, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And now we remember a book 
uh, or an episode from the, the book of Genesis where uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire and brimstone because of their sexual immorality. So he's given three illustrations here. We need to step back and ask ourselves, what do they all have in common? Well, two things. First of all, judgment. They all have in common judgment. When, when people rebelled against the will and the plan of God and engaged in, in immorality, and two of the examples are sexual immorality, when they engaged in sexual immorality, God set them apart and reserved them for judgment. And so he is saying to uh, the, those who would be erring in the churches to which he is writing, you need to understand there's a price to pay for this, all right? And it's judgment. And you're saying, okay, I don't get how any of that's hope. <laughs> How's that hope? Well, and the other thing that kind of holds these, these things together, it's the idea of the deliverance of the faithful. Those who were faithful in the wilderness did see the promised land. The entire human race was not corrupted. God reserved Noah and his family to himself and preserved them through the flood in the ark. Not every citizen of Sodom and Gomorrah died. The family of Lot was preserved. God is always active in preserving the faithful, and here's where the hope kicks in. It may sometimes feel like a never-ending battle against all of the ways that, that within the church the gospel seems to be being corrupted and moved away from. And it can cause God's people to think that we can never, ever win. And he is saying judgment will come for those who deviate and go away from the gospel. And God will preserve his people. So we live in that hope. We don't fight a fruitless battle. We are not engaging a, a no-win situation. We are going to be delivered and preserved by God for faithfulness and his glory. So, what's our battle plan? It's to live in our identity in Christ, our humble identity in Christ, engaging not as the judge of erring brothers and sisters, but as someone seeking to redeem erring brothers and sisters, and not just adopting a tone and tenor of being a jerk. We are to live in the power of our mission, understanding the importance of sharing the gospel that we have been given with those outside of the faith and then lashing ourselves together as a local church to preserve with one another by remaining accountable to one another the faith. And then we are to constantly live in the power of our hope, understanding God will deliver his faithful. And so what, what should we do in light of all of this? I mean, what, what's our next steps here to live in the power of these three things? Very quickly, I would just simply say and offer to you that the first thing you need to do is cultivate Christ-likeness. Cultivate Christ-likeness. In other words, understand that you were saved so that your life could become a vehicle for the life of Christ in this world and begin a process at the moment of your salvation of becoming more and more like Jesus until he returns for you or you go to him in death. You need to cultivate Christ-likeness. How do you do that? I know it sounds like a broken record, but you do that through Scripture on a personal level, not just reading it and checking a box, but engaging God in it, talking to God as you walk through Scripture. You do it through prayer, not as you just fire off your list to God, but as you 
pour out your heart to God and and then as you sit in silence before God as he begins to speak to you through his word to to shape you you you, you do it you do it as you as you meditate on the scripture that you memorized and reflect on the greatness of God and and move towards Christ likeness in that way you do it by sitting silent before God saying here I am speak to your servant you you do it through the things that Christians have done for millennia called spiritual disciplines Bible study and prayer and memorization and meditation and silence and all of these things if you want to know more about it we've got resources in our library at both campuses that can help you know um, really sound biblical ways to engage these things so cultivate Christ likeness next cultivate community cultivate community we spent a lot of time talking about that this spring and summer in the book of first Peter but folks you're not gonna make it unless you're lashed tightly to the local church you're just not you're gonna be free to imagine things that you want to imagine and think things you want to think and not have any idea what the Bible says and not have anybody in your life to tell you you're wrong or to say you're right go with that Go in that direction. You need the local church. You need to cultivate community. And you do that not simply by walking in on a Sunday morning and sitting in a pew, but you do it through engaging people in Bible study, our Sunday school classes, and a whole host of of different opportunities to connect. And then the final thing, beyond just cultivating Christ-likeness and cultivating community, just don't panic. Don't panic. The world perceives us as scared little dogs on dark stoops in the middle of the night. We are not giving and bearing witness to the hope we have in Christ. Yes, it may be hard. Yes, there may be real threats outside the church and within the church. But God delivers his faithful. Don't panic. And if we do those things then when those existential threats come as they come to every generation we can deal with them appropriately and in a way that honors God and preserves the faithful